If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. For this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast, Jeff, you had a chance to speak with Andy Stegel, who's the President and Chief Customer Officer at Higher Logic. I did, and Andy, somebody that uh, I've known for many years, uh, he started out in the association world, was actually at a large association where he got involved with uh, using communities, on- online communities, at first with listserv software and then just getting more uh, complex and, and uh, richer from there. And he eventually moved over to Higher Logic, where you know he was able to bring that experience to bear on what they are doing as a company. And just because he's been so deeply immersed in this for years from both the you know, the practitioner side and now from the vendor side, he just has a huge amount of knowledge about how online communities work, what makes them successful, what you need to do to get them up and running, what you need to do to sustain them. So we talk about all of that in, in this interview, and I think you'll find some, you know, really great, uh, useful tips uh, from, the, from the conversation with Andy. And plus, it makes for nice, easy listening because he has a great accent. So let's go ahead and head on over to that interview. This is Jeff Cobb, and I am here today with Andy Steggles, who is the President and Chief Customer Officer for Higher Logic, and he is also the author of the best-selling book, Social Networking for Nonprofits, and we're going to be talking social networking uh, and social learning today. Andy, thanks so much for taking some time to join the Leading Learning Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Well, I know, um, you know, I mentioned that you're at Higher Logic now, which is obviously a, a technology platform, a provider of uh, social technology, primarily to trade and professional associations. And I know you yourself actually came from that trade and professional association background before you got into the, the world of being a technology provider. Can you tell us just a, a little bit about your background and kind of how you got from the association world to, to where you are now? Yeah, sure. Um, so back in, I think it was 99, I uh, moved from the UK over to New York and took a job as the head of technology for RINS, the Risk and Insurance Management Society. That was uh, you know, a, a hybrid trade and professional uh, association uh, with about 10,000 individual members represented by about 4,000 companies. Um, and the, uh, you know, while I was there, I, basically, if it plugged in, it kind of fell under my area. <laughs> and one of the things that was very frustrating for me was the, um, you know, the the asynchronous member collaboration experience. So, in other words, we were using, like most organizations, kind of a, a more uh, traditional listserv. And, you know, and at the same time, I was a member of ASAE, and I was, uh, you know, one of my most valuable member benefits was their listserv. Mm. But again, I had the same frustrations. It was actually the same software, uh, Lyris, at the time. And um, so, you know, I started thinking if I was going to do this, you know, what would I do to make it better? And I kept proposing and asking Lyris to build different features. But of course, it, it unfortunately fell on deaf ears. And uh, just things like the digest within a digest that was continuous and the the lack of user-friendliness for the web experience, it complemented it. Um, but the beautiful thing about the listserv, it was very proactive with, with the generation of emails and whatnot. So eventually, I decided to try and build a, a, a bridge on top of Lyris. That's how it kind of started. And build something that at the time was called eGroups. 
And uh, before I knew it, it was, I mean, it was a huge hit for RIMS and the members absolutely loved it. Um, and, and the idea was that, you know, some organizations had moved to a traditional bulletin board and but the bulletin board lacked the proactivity of a listserv, right? right? So I thought, right. well, surely there's got to be a compromise where you can do the two. And so build this kind of solution, that, uh, I built the solution that kind of bridge the two together. Um, and now that evolved into what we now know as, a, as an online community um, that has a, the proactivity of a you know, listserv and things like that. Right, right. And I guess, you know, because I, I can remember, I guess, being at ASAE meetings uh, back in those days and then hearing you talk about what you were doing at RIMS and how are you putting things together. And, uh, um, you know, the, you were you were clearly thinking ahead of the, the crowd at that point. But it seems like these days, you know, everybody and their mother wants to have a community, basically. Um, and then they want to, you know, put up some sort of software to support it. Um, so may, maybe just to, to start with, before we kind of dig into what it takes to actually do that successfully, how how do you define community? I mean, when does a group of people actually tip into truly being a community? You, you know, we have, um, it, you know, Rob, my uh, business partner, and he's a co-founder of Hyalogic uh, with himself. We, we have different litmus tests for this. Hmm. He's, his test is if your audience wouldn't mind receiving one email from their peers, you know, on a, on a like every business day, then that's his litmus test. Um, my litmus test is, is a little bit different. It's if your organization has an annual conference, an in-person annual conference, then that tells me there's a, there's a reason for the members to get together and collaborate. And, and, it, and it's a strong enough reason that they're prepared to go somewhere and, and spend you know, actual time, you know, usually a few days together. Um, and the common denominator with both of those tests is you know, it's a group of people with a common interest that are compelled enough to want to collaborate. Right. Um, but, but, but there's different levels of that. And I, I give you the example um, with Comcast, right? Where if, I, if my internet's down, I have an interest. It is a common interest with other people who have got the same issue with Com- Comcast. I might go to their online forum and try and find a solution or ask a question. But I, you know, I would never want to go to a com- Comcast <laughs> conference, right? Or I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to get an email every day from them because right. really, it's not helping me with my profession or my career. It's it's not business; it's more consumer. Um, so, you know, in a nutshell, a group of people with a common interest, a strong common interest, um, you know, in a from a professional or career, uh, you know, uh, perspective. And so let's say that uh, you've got a group that, you know, meets that litmus test, uh, uh, whether more of yours or, or Rob's, but there, there is that compelling interest um, that's pulling them together. Um, I, I'm sure this is a question you get all the time, but um, where do you go from there? I mean, what are the most essential steps for actually getting an online community up and started successfully? Well, the, the first thing is normally when, uh, you know, when somebody comes to us, an organization comes to us, they have kind of one or two things in mind. But as other, you know, key staff within the organization start understanding the potential of community, whether it's advocacy or, or uh, chapter relations or the education or, or you know, the learning uh, department, whatever department is, there's an application from the community perspective. Um, and so the problem is organizations tend to be pulled in so many directions that they, they run the risk of not being successful in any. So probably the, the number one um, you know, essential step, I, I would say, is choose your primary goal. Don't try and do everything at once. 
just figure out what is the, the number one thing we want to achieve from this. Focus on that initially. Be, you know, achieve your your um, degree of success, whatever. Hopefully, you, you should have set a metric and defined what you what you consider success uh, before you even start the project. And then once you've achieved that, that element of success, that, that measurement, then predefined measurement, then go to the next, um, the next phase, which perhaps, so usually, for example, you may start off with member to member discussions, collaboration, that's your, you know, ideation and, and sharing, that sort of thing. But then maybe phase two would be to support your chapters and, and, you know, can have more control over your branding by providing communities for each of the chapters and the community might have a website and, and all of the other you know, typical stuff. And then maybe phase three might be mentoring or, or you know, learning or advocacy or something like that. But each organization may have different priorities and we've had certainly have many organizations come to us where their top priority is to um, extend the value of the learning opportunities that, that they provide. Right, whether it's in-person courses or, or webinars or whatever else, and so community is a natural extension of that because it's a it's not just a, an association which is a group of people of, with a common interest, but it's a subset of that association with an even more defined uh, common interest related to the the educational experience that they're they're you know trying to uh, focus on. And in your experience, uh, you know, when you're getting started, uh, is there any magic number, um, you know, that you see uh, consistently across organizations that they need to have, you know, at least X number of people in there engaging at some level if if they're really going to get the thing off the ground? Um, well, we're just about to release our uh, second annual report with Marketing General that we contracted with Marketing General to analyze our anonymized engagement data to figure out kind of um, you know what the you know what the um, best success metrics are uh, throughout, and what we found was size of the organisation is a huge um, element in terms of success. And you know, arguably, you'd think that the larger organisation, the more the more um, likely people are going to have to you know to converse. Um, the, the more you know, the, the more chance they're going to have to converse. We actually found when you when you normalize the data and you know um, and look at the engagement levels, smaller organizations tend to score much better than larger organizations. Uh, and I'll give you an example: the uh, the alliance of uh, AC, ACA. Um, I can't remember what it stands for. Uh, anyway, th- this is an organization of financial um, professionals. And they have 400 members, and last year alone, they generated 15,000 discussion messages. Wow. I mean, it was insane, right? But yet, you know, you look at a huge organization, um, you know, for example, and I'm kind of making the number up because I can't remember off the top of my head, but like Sherm, for example, you know, know, over over 100,000 members, and, you know, they're doing pretty well, but they're, they're actually probably generating about, I don't know, 30,000 messages a year. Um, and, and so while on the theme of it, on, on the face of it, they're doing better than the, the smaller org, but when you look at the percentage of members that are contributing and you, right. you factor in those ratios, um, the smaller organization is doing so much better. Right, right. So, you know, now that's not to say large organizations can't achieve the same success, but there's um, the notion of, of smaller organizations 
it, for small organizations, it's easier to generate a, a deeper sense of community. And, and the more of a, the more of a sense of community there is for the members, the more likely they are and the more comfortable they are with, with engaging with each other in an asynchronous environment. That's interesting. And, and, I, and I guess an extension of that might be that if you are a larger organization, you need to kind of find out where your passionate niches are to, to really spark some um, conversation. But I know at the same time, because one of the things you know, I wanted to talk about was longer term success for communities. And I know one of the things you caution against is not, not over segmenting, not, not you know, cutting things down too much into, into smaller groups. Can you talk a little bit about that and just in general what it takes over the long term to ensure that you know, a community is going to sustain and, and be successful? Yeah, um, I, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there about not over-segmenting, and there's always exceptions to this. Like, if you already have a successful listserv and you're migrating, you know, from a listserv over to a community platform, then, you know, then that would be an exception. But if you've never had any sort of, um, you know, member-to-member online collaboration, and it, let's say that you've got 10,000 members and you've got 10 core industry segments and the natural inclination is to launch with a community for each of the segments. But we, we see that that's a recipe for, for uh, like failure. And, and, and think of launching a community, the, the evolution of a community is like the evolution of an association. When the association first started, it started typically with just a few people with a common interest and that grew and grew. And eventually when, when you get critical mass, you start identifying segments of, of this, what became a membership um, with different interests, like sub-interests from, from the broader organization. And so the, the point being, an association, when it's formed, they don't launch with interest groups from day one. Uh, and the same is true with the community. You launch the broader community, you build critical mass, you make it self-sustaining so, that, so there's not a huge amount of staff work involved. And then, you know, six months after the launch or whatever, when you see a huge portion, a percentage of the uh, discussions are focused on one of the, the interest areas, that's when, you know, you can make a more informed decision about whether you want to create these uh, subgroups or, or subcommunities. Uh, and, and you don't do them all at once. You'll do them as you know that each one has got a good chance of success. Right. So uh, that's probably, you know, start simple. Keep, you know, just and also keep in mind that to launch successfully launch one community, um, you know, on average, and this there's a huge variance with this, but let's say that it takes 40 hours worth of staff time over perhaps a two month period. Right. Well, there isn't there isn't that much uh, economy of scale, and if you have to launch ten communities, then that will be ten essentially ten times forty hours, right? So there's a huge amount of work if you're going to do it successfully to the point where it's self-sustaining and every day there's conversations going on. Right, right. Well, and and I know at this point you've worked with a wide range of organizations. Are there you know some some stars out there from from your perspective who have just done a great job of launching and and you know. Uh, sustaining a, a community over time. Yeah, I mean, there's there's too many to count <laughs> to be honest with you. But if, if I just take a, a few that have launched maybe in the last couple of months, um, you know, keep in mind we have over like 600 organizations. But if we uh, it, like, for example, SAE, right, the SAE International, which is the uh, Society of Automotive Engineering, although now that they're just called SAE. Um, I think they have about 45,000 members, and in their first three months, uh, they didn't auto-subscribe everybody, but in their first three months, they generated 800 or so organic posts 
the look and the feel of the website is great, and that's um, uh, connection.sae.org is, is the URL. Another one that springs to mind, uh, the uh, radio, radiologic technologists, uh, ASRT, ASRT, the American Society of Radio, Radiologic, I, I can never say that word, technologists. <laughs> um, their, uh, their URL is community.asrt.org. They launched July the 6th, and within um, two and a half months, it generated over 4,000 messages wow. with 500, with an additional 500 direct replies to the sender, which is also measurable as well. Uh, but that sounds a lot, but they also have 150,000 plus thousand members, of which 135,000 are subscribed to at least one community. Wow. Okay. Um, they were absolutely meticulous in their implementation process, so they followed pretty much all of our recommendations and best practices, and, and the results really uh, speak for themselves. And, and one more that I'll give a shout-out to that launched just uh, a month or two ago was um, AAPA, the American Academy of Physician Assistants, uh, their URL is huddle.aapa.org, um, and they came with an ambitious plan where they wanted to launch within a month of signing the contract, uh, which you know is a little bit aggressive if you're going to do it right. But boy, did they really! Uh, they really they came through with everything, um, and even came through with a plan B, right? Understanding that it just may not be possible, but yeah, they launched with you know everything came through with plan A, uh, fifty thousand members. And within the first, uh, you know, two months or so, they generated well over a thousand unique discussions. So, wow, you know, yeah. again, great looking website and, uh, you know, very successful from, from their perspective, especially, you know, as they've experienced a downcline in, in a downturn retention. So they're looking to turn that around, which I'm positive they will do, yeah. um, you know, partly as a result of this. Well, that, that's good. those are some great examples, and we'll be sure to put um, the, the links you mentioned into the show notes for the podcast so that's easy for folks to click on and at, and at least get an outside view. I assume they can't necessarily get into these communities, um, but kind of get a, a sense of it at least. Um, you know, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, what's actually going on um, in these communities. And, and of course, you know, this is the Leading Learning Podcast, uh, and, and Tagoras, uh, you know, my company is all about uh, learning, um, social learning being a, a huge component of that. Um, so I'd love to get your perspective on the role of, you know, learning and, and knowledge sharing as part of, you know, how a community develops uh, successfully and, and, and what organizations can can do to help promote, you know, the kind of knowledge sharing and, and learning that's going to make the community valuable. Yeah, so um, this is a, a really interesting area, and it's an area that I am absolutely fascinated about, and I've done a, a lot of work, um, a lot of work with. But essentially, there are there are so many different strategies you can take around social learning. But I'll give you a couple of the, and, and every every one depends on what the organisation is trying to achieve, what their current learning structure is. You know, for example, some organisations just have their annual conference and their webinar, right? And but their conference, they might have like hundreds of sessions or thousands of poster sessions or, you know, whatever it is. So the strategy for that sort of environment would be entirely different from an organization that perhaps has, um, you know, uh, a, a two-day class that they run once a month on different topics, for example. So so you really got to kind of factor that in. And we have essentially, I mean, a, a, a best practice solution for any of, you know, any possible scenario you could you could come up with, I think. Um, probably the, the most interesting, in my mind, are organizations uh, that have the in-person class and they're looking to extend the value. 
Um, and that's where you, you come in with this blended learning solution where, and, and this has obviously become much more popular in, in recent years where, you know, you have perhaps a, uh, either an in-person event or perhaps some live conference calls or, you know, something that's uh, more of a synchronous, um, you know, conversation. But for, and, and the strategy is similar, whether it's phone calls or in-person events, but let's just say that you have a, a two-day course right on and i'll think of my uh, when i was working at rims so two days course on workers compensation right just uh, uh, which is one of the risk management topics um so in that scenario you would integrate with the registration system which is obviously usually the ams but it could also be uh, some lms platform as well depending on the integration is a big factor on where you integrate and how you integrate but let's assume just for you know, for argument's sake, that it's in the core CRM, right, or um, whatever it is. As people register, they're automatically added to to a community, and the community is automatically created for that particular instance of a course. Keep in mind that workers' comp, in this example, the same course runs 10 times a year, right? So each instance of the course is is its own community. Um, and the idea is that once you've got critical mass, in other words, once you've got a certain number of people registered, or it could be a certain um, number of days before the event starts, and we recommend a combination. So let's say that there's 30 people in the course. Once you've reached 15 registrants, and it's three weeks before the uh, um, three weeks before the the actual course starts, then. Um, uh, you know, then you would actually do the set up the automation rules and um, figure out, all right, we want everybody to introduce themselves uh, as part of their, their pre-event, pre-in-person experience. So in other words, the idea is you get people to, to bond and connect and, and get to know each other. And typically you ask them to answer like three simple questions. They'll have a, a, a profile, a completed profile attached as well. And they post them to the community. Everybody gets to see who else is attending the course in advance. So they've got a better idea of the sort of questions they're going to have for each other and make that in-person networking experience um, more valuable. Then they have the course. The instructor, you know, needs to be uh, kind of trained and, and um, in order to get them to, like, share their notes and ask questions and create a back-channel conversation during the course um, and then after the course, the idea is that you extend that conversation. And in a, in a, a few really great um, cases I've seen, the instructor has actually gone to the, um, gone to the um, class afterwards via the community and asked them, you know, all right, what have you done? What have you implemented that you learned in the class? Um, have you had any challenges? In other words, the instructor tries to hold them accountable for a little bit. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and extend the conversation. And usually with a particular class, the community would run from maybe a month before the class starts to about two or three months after, but it can go on forever. Um, so that's just one example. And then the other one is, well, what about everybody that's completed and passed the course? Um, and, and then you have the ability to create alumni groups for everybody with that particular interest that's gone through that training. Um, and there's a whole strategy around that as well. So, and, and so that's kind of a more involved approach, but then the simpler one is, let's just say I've got a webinar, right? Well, you can use a community that's close, that, that most closely matches that webinar topic 
and then have the uh, the presenter, the expert for that community, um, uh, you know, available and agree to answer questions about the topic over the next couple of days after the webinar is being given. Right, right. You know, and I think it's interesting. I've I've noticed a lot out in the more sort of I guess I'll characterize it as the entrepreneurial world um, that this whole idea of having membership sites, which are, you know, essentially learning communities that usually have some, some training and, and, you know, high value content in them and you get access to some sort of expert who's, who's behind it. Um, that's a big business model right now. And, and in fact, you know, there are companies out there like Copyblogger that have created whole platforms that really are geared to, you know, these sort of um, for-profit type membership sites. D- do you ever see organizations, you know, uh, I'm thinking, you know, trade and professional type associations offering community as a, as a product, you know, that it's, it's not just a member benefit, but something they charge for separately or offered a, a premium level or that sort of thing. Do you, do you see any traction for that kind of model in the association world? You, you know, frankly, most times I've seen something like that, it's failed. Mm. Um, you know, we, we've had a few organizations that had a great idea, a community doesn't exist for this particular, you know, area of interest or expertise or something. And they, uh, you know, and they, they are convinced that a community would be a great solution with the idea of monetizing it once they've got critical mass. It, it's very, very difficult to to make a model like that work. Um, the ones that have seen the more that are most closely matched that that have been more successful are, for example, when you tie a community around uh, an educational offering, right, and you have some valuable content that people people are more interested in paying for the the valuable content as long as you've got a differentiator from all the free stuff that's out there um, than they are for you know for paying for a community but if you if you provide valuable content like webinars podcasts you know that sort of thing and then attach community to it as a as a value add then that's how you can make the community successful and then you can turn it around and then people will eventually pay for access to the community because it, it's like a you know, it's like an association. It's like a member benefit. Right. But it's, it's very difficult if you just want to, you know, create a community product from the get-go with nothing to that, that's going to be the hook. Right. Now I can see that that connection between the content and the community is is uh, essential. Um, so as we're winding down here, I've got a couple more questions I want to ask you, and and one of them is, um, you know, you're obviously immersed in in this stuff on a, on a day-to-day basis and are a thought leader yourself. Um, so what, what do you see as the most important trends or innovations that are on the horizon for online communities? Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I'd actually defer to the Community Roundtable, which is kind of the industry-leading organization for community managers. They've done a lot of research around what makes a successful um, community. And one of the things they published was the uh, Community Roundtable's maturity model. Um, and it's a way of evaluating how mature are you as an organization with respect to leveraging community. Um, and it's a fascinating model. But interestingly, when we did our benchmark uh, study for our 600 or so organizations, we asked a question. We asked them to self-judge where they are on the maturity model. And most of them, I'd say the average is there was four stages within the maturity model um, the, the first stage is more of an ad hoc kind of uh, just wing it approach. The, uh, and the, you know, stage four, which is the most uh, involved, um, that's when the organization has fully immersed every and any uh, aspect of the organization uh, with its community. Um, and we see that the average organization is probably at stage two. So I think that even though you know, there's a lot of traction around communities, 
um, there's still a huge, there's massive room for improvement in terms of fully leveraging community and just creating a fantastic experience for the members, which of course will result, and we know from the data, it results in, uh, you know, um, much greater member satisfaction and, and uh, you know, significantly improved member retention as well. So I think that, yeah, I guess in terms of the trends, just maturing the use of, of an association's um, uh, uh, community. Well, great. This has been a, a great conversation. Um, one thing we do always like to ask a guest on Leading Learning before we part ways, though we, we are obviously very focused on lifelong learning. And so it'd be great to hear from you, uh, you know, what, what your own practices are when it comes to, to lifelong learning. What kind of habits do you have? And maybe most pointedly, just given who you are, are there particular communities, you know, you look to uh, to support you in, in, in your lifelong learning? Yeah, so, I, you know, it's interesting because I had this whole conversation with somebody the other day, uh, and we were talking about ASAE and their, their mm. communities, of course, is, is powered by higher logic. But the, um, you know, and and there was a whole conversation going on around whether the the contributors to the, um, the communities should be given CE credits. Mm. And that started, I mean, that's a whole debate in itself and right. there's pros and cons and yeah, it's very controversial, but it's a provocative discussion in itself. But that does tie in with the, the value of communities and, and the discussions that members have with each other. And the fact is that every day we're learning from what other people are posting. And yes, there's some posts that just are nonsense and they, you know, perhaps don't give us much value. But we, we self-select and we pick the ones that we're interested in and we read and we're learning continuously. And I think that people do underestimate how much power and how much, how much of a learning experience is involved with, you know, what we've traditionally just called lurking. Um, and so, you know, from my perspective, I think, yes, I get the more formal education from, you know, um, uh, like conferences and going to attending sessions and things like that. In my case, I, I often go to ASA ones. I think they're really valuable. Um, the great ideas or the digital now conference and things like that. Um, but I also, I'd probably, I, I think I get even more value from the communities of which I belong where social learning is, is, you know, in full effect in its elements, but we just perhaps have, have not recognized it as a way of learning, but yet it's there and, and we do it every day. In my case, the community roundtable is is phenomenal, and so is uh, ASAE. It's incredibly valuable. Um, you know, just it's and it's something I commit to every day. I just skim through the subject lines, but if there's something I'm interested, I look at it then, or I look at it a little bit later. If not, I just delete the the thread and then go on. But every every couple of days, something's there that grabs my interest, and usually I learn something from it. Well, great. I know my, my own experiences with, with lifelong learning are, are, are very similar. Often you're, you're engaged in, in that social learning. You don't, don't even know you're doing it, but it's incredibly valuable. And if it, you know, if it disappears at any point, you suddenly realize you, you, you know, you're missing out on, on some of the best sources of, of learning that, that you've had. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, just on that, that note, I'm, you, know, you have certain people that are much better, much better learning in a classroom right, than, than taking an online course. I'm one of those people. I'm terrible at taking online courses. I get distracted. I just, you know, I have a hard time completing them because I'm just so busy doing other stuff. So I have to have that in-person, um, you know, which is why I like conferences where you sessions and you're very immersed in it. But the fact is, 
every day I am learning in an asynchronous environment from, you know, from my peers, you know, from what other people have taken the time to contribute and, and discuss. So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, even if you're a, more like myself, an in-classroom person, uh, there's definitely a, an opportunity to learn in, in, you know, using other mediums. Well, I certainly could not agree more. So, Andy, Andy, just to, to finish up here, what, what's the best way for um, anyone who's listening to, to connect with you, to find out more about you, to find out more about Higher Logic? Uh, yeah, just go to uh, HigherLogic.com. Uh, you'll see a, uh, um, you know, a contact us link in the corner. Or if you want to look at you know, my profile specifically, it's HigherLogic.com forward slash Andy Seggles. Great, and I'm assuming people can connect with you on Twitter and places like that as well. Is that? Uh... Yeah, yeah. Or yeah, I say this again, pretty old school, but just Andy at HigherLogic.com. Uh, feel free to email me. I, I love hearing from people that are interested in, in community engagement and, and learning. Well, great. Well, Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to, to talk today. My pleasure. Cheers. So that's the interview with Andy Steggles. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 10, the word episode, the number 10. And while you're there, you'll also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you haven't done that yet, and if you're enjoying listening to it, if you're getting value out of it, we would be very happy to have you subscribe. We'd also be truly grateful if you would take a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. Ratings are very important over there, both to help people find the podcast and, of course, just to be motivating to us and, and make sure that we'll continue doing this on a week-to-week basis. To do that, all you have to do is go to leadinglearning.com iTunes. And we also hope that you'll consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. That'll auto-populate a tweet that you can send out. But if you're not uh, on Twitter much, you can also just take that text and take it to your social network of choice and post it there. And that does it for this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>